Welcome to Recogs, the show where we learn how the world's best business operators build consumer brands from sourcing to selling. Brought to you by Manufactured. Manufactured is an online platform that helps brands manufacture, finance, and distribute inventory across 20 industries and 25 countries. If you're interested in learning more, check out manufactured.com. Our guest today is Brian Gannon, who is the founder and CEO of Loop. Loop is a private family network and home display that helps families stay connected. We get into the weeds about how we found the right manufacturer for Loop and this whole production process. How we also thought about financing growth, whether it be equity or debt. And also prepping for Black Friday and the holiday season from an inventory perspective. Without further ado, here's Brian. Brian, thank you so much for joining me here today. How are you? Doing great, Mike. Thanks for having me. Really, I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, so talk, talk to you from like the very beginning. What was kind of like the aha moment that led you to found Loop? Yeah, so uh, I'm originally from Boston, um, but I live in San Francisco now. And when I had kids, um, I decided I you know, suddenly wanted to really you know, keep them connected to my life and the, and the kids' lives for my their grandparents and brother, sister, and nephew, and aunt. And I just didn't want to post pictures of my kids on Facebook. It was as simple as that. It, it started with a problem, of course. And I started, you know, talking with other people, doing some research, and um, and people were saying the same thing, like, oh, wow, you know, there's a lot of people that are getting into the privacy movement. And I was like, great, I'll make this app, right? <laughs> and people were like, great, built an app, and everyone's like, forget about it, I'm still going to text message my family or something like that. And until we really came up with this idea for a digital frame that solved all the other problems, like connecting in elderly grandparents, being able to see all those pictures, that's really the sort of when things clicked. But the the founding of the company and the problem was just me and my kids. It seems like quite a complex business in some ways, because you have like the physical digital photo frame, and then as well as you have, you know, a social media, a private social media network. Um, how did you go launch? How did you go and think about, uh, and of course, you know, inventory based businesses, it's really freaking hard, right? Especially ones that as well as, as there's like a software component, right? That loop there is. So how did you, how did you go about creating like your first prototype and, and it kind of had to marry these, these two different models? Yeah. So, you know, on one hand it was, I'm happy that we started out kind of as a software company because we had taken a chunk out of it. So I think when people say hardware is hard, oftentimes I think what they're really saying in my world is the so- making a connected piece of hardware and the whole shebang work, that's hard. You know, a CPG company might be a little bit less sophisticated in terms of all the different problems, right? They have inventory and all that, but maintaining an app and all that stuff. So, so in one hand, we kind of were like, great, I've got something foundational here. And we kind of lucked into this hardware thing. And you know, interestingly, I'll kind of talk about maybe some of the mistakes I made um, leading into it. What When we started, we were saying, whoa, this is pretty interesting. Like that digital frame business, didn't that used to suck? What an interesting entry point, right? Of like, hey, I'm familiar, but I don't, they weren't great. You know, like that kind of seemed interesting. And I was like, oh, this will be so easy, <laughs> right? Like, you know, um, we, you know, we're so smart. This will be so easy. I, had, I was a chip designer. I had been to China a hundred times. Like, you know, I, I felt like I had it. And then we kind of pulled a, maybe like a, a, a Johnny Ives moment for a minute, like a Steve Jobs thing. And we're like, this thing needs to be so lusciously beautiful and painted on the inside. And it was metal knob. And so we built this product 
that was not a digital frame, right? And that was intentional. Like, no, no, this is a, like a content viewer for your family's memories. And, you know, it, it's going to stream video and it's going to have all this other wacky features. Um, and, you know, when you get the early adopters stirred up, you get a lot of feedback. And, you know, look, we did like a million dollars in sales. And frankly, the Apple designers you <laughs> use our product. Like, there's a lot of these, like, you know, interesting ego stroking things. But, but the reality was we had actually missed our mark, um, meaning, yeah, I could sell it in Silicon Valley. Yeah, I could sell it to famous designers and photographers and artists and all this crew because we were trying to impress them with an Apple-esque product. But the reality was we were trying to just solve the normal, you know, American family's problem, right, of staying connected and sharing pictures in a super easy way for not a huge and expensive cost either. So we, we, we did ship the first one, shipped a million dollars worth of it, but really didn't start to scale um, until we kind of fixed that and made something that was, you know, truly much more of a digital picture frame. How did you actually create, like, walk me through like a little bit of the process of like creating like your first prototype? People that are kind of new to it, the first step, and, and I might jump back and forth here as I kind of go back to yesteryear, but, you know, when you really think about the hardware component, um, generally speaking, what you're trying to do is to create two models. One would be a works-like model, and one would be a looks-like model. And the reason you separate them is because it's too hard to make one that does both. It'll take you 10 times more time. So you make the looks-like model like, oh, see this? This is really what it's all going to look like. And you can show investors, you can show retailers, and it's not expected to work. You know, that's the promise. Um, and you can make it perfect, right? Then you have the works-like model, and that's something that's just going to be wires, PCBs, and you know, ugly things that gets across some of the basic functionality and serves as usually a, a, a platform for doing that. Um, and then it gets even more detailed of products like ours, where there's like two or three places in the world that you can get something made so incredibly precise and beautiful um, that, you know, you kind of have to know five people and you're like, oh, there's a place in models. I'll just tell you, it's like model solution. And, you know, it, it, there's just these, you know, once you are in the business a little while, you find these just gem of places that can create these incredibly uh, accurate, mo you know, uh, models for you. So I guess how, how did you go about maybe finding, um, was the same company that was doing the prototyping, was that eventually became like your manufacturer that actually you could scale with? No, no. So actually the first thing that helped me get off the, so one, I had some experience in making connected hardware, right? Like, so, you know, chips, PCB, firmware, and a little bit on the application, you know, and I had experience in manufacturers in China, not a ton, but enough to be dangerous. But then I got into an accelerator um, called Highway One, and it's in San Francisco. It, you know, somehow we found out about it. And it was basically a place that they would say, hey, you got an idea, but you probably don't have all the tools to do it. And as I go back, I realize, yeah, there's so many different pieces of the puzzle. And really what they did is kind of helped you navigate this idea. Like I didn't know what a works like model looks like. I walk in there and they say, hey, what you're going to get to in the next, you know, here's about 20 grand, right? So there's a little bit of money to use. Um, you're going to need to create in the next 12 weeks a works like model and a looks like model will help you. There's some engineering here. There's some advice. Um, and so that helped that really, and then they explained to us the process of partnering with a manufacturer 
um, and they could potentially give you some contacts. Um, and so that really obviously was a huge, again, I thought I knew more than I did and I realized there was a lot more to it. I, I really appreciate that. Can we go a little bit in terms of like what you actually look for and like the right manufacturer, how you kind of vetted um, the, the manufacturer itself and kind of landed on, on the one that you, that, that actually builds loop? <laughs> Yeah, a hundred percent. And we made mistakes, right? Um, so I'll talk about the first thing we did. So the first thing we did is we we hired a company and a firm that does this for a living in a way. They find you, so you get to pay them a chunk of money, very expensive. They scour China and these other places to build it. Um, they, they kind of become your operations team. Um, and the problem with it was that they treated it like this formula that you could go through a spreadsheet and figure out like, oh, this is, you know, this needs to be medical grade plus this, what type of suppliers. And in the end, they found us a really suboptimal, in the end, we realized was a suboptimal supplier. Like they just didn't have our skill set. And this, and, and so the product took longer to make with them because they just didn't, they hadn't done something like this is really what I was trying to get at. They, they checked other boxes, right? But not all the right boxes. And so what we learned is it's a little bit more of a common sense um, approach. And actually in the middle of this whole thing, this is kind of a funny Silicon Valley thing. Are you familiar with Dropcam? Do you remember um, Dropcam that got bought by... It was the precursor. Basically, they got bought, they got bought. It's a home camera that streams to your phone, right? So they were bought by Google and they became Nest. So essentially, they were the first probably a credible company that got bought by Google for like a half billion. Um, they made the first connected camera to a smartphone, right? Stream what's going on, security camera made easy. Anyways, the founder of that, was one of my advisors, and he then hooked me up with Dropcam's entire operations team. Um, and, you know, that was actually quite helpful. It was like ca calling in a SWAT team to get shit done, but it actually was overkill to some extent. And then I'll kind of take you to the where we're the present day. And what I found, and this is sort of the advice for folks, um, and it was given to me as well, was you're trying to find somebody that's already done something really close to what you're doing, right? It, and I know that sounds obvious, but sometimes people find people that want to get into your industry and you would be the first. So they're very eager, right? And you're like, great, they're going to cut me a deal. They're really into this. That's kind of what we did. We found somebody earlier, but their capabilities are not great. And what happens is if you don't start shipping a lot of units, you're usually late to market. And you burn them out, right? Whereas... If you find somebody that does something similar to you, and you might say, well, shoot, what about my IP and all that? Reality is that, you know, many businesses, it's not about the, you know, the, the IP of your hardware. It's the IP of your software or your brand or your, all these other things, right? So you're trying to find somebody that both really is interested in you and the intersection of they've done something damn close to this, shipped millions of units, and it's really a twist on what they're already doing. And that, by the way, just to be blunt, sometimes can be accomplished through research through Alibaba. Yeah, I mean, like, I think that that is, like, part of the challenge, too, right? Because when you're starting out, right, like, you're um, uh, you're obviously, you know, in the early stages. It's not like you can do a massive order uh, quantity. So it's also, 
how do you make sure that you're like being taken seriously, right, by them and that you're actually serious about this product, but at the same time also kind of understanding that, listen, if this goes well, right, this is going to become, we're going to become a massive customer of yours. But in the in the beginning days, it's very tricky, right? Yeah, and exactly. And so you're trying to balance selling the dream without completely, like the further away the dream is that you promised is better because it gives you more time to start catching up. You know, right next year, we're going to do 100,000 units, like year one. You know, gosh, if they're banking on you because of that promise, they're going to be disappointed. If you can somehow create that idea that there is going to be this, you know, look, and again, you're walking into this Chinese factory or zooming with them and telling them all these incredible things about your company. It's going to be so huge. And you're, you know, that's great. But on the flip side, you want to make sure that they're okay doing small batches at the beginning. Like as part of my second factory and the, uh, the sort of due diligence I had on them was, hey, are you able to do small batches at the beginning? Can you do 1,000, 1,500 units for the first several batches so that we can make sure we're de-risking it, start to get our systems up and running. And if they said 5,000 units, 10,000 units, minimum order quantity, that would have been really challenging for us. Um, we, it just would have been way too much capital too soon. And you're taking so much risk because if you make a mistake, I mean, you, you both have a problem. It's not like they're just going to refund everything. Um, and so that, by the way, that also comes down to if they've already got a supply chain up and running, making something very similar to what you're making, the idea for them to flick off and just kind of like not turn their whole factory upside down and their engineering teams upside down to accomplish your project, it's an easier lift, right? And, and therefore they can kind of, you know, agree to do small batches. Yeah, I think I, that makes that makes a ton of sense. It's also, you know, what, how much, how much heavy lifting does it actually take in order to, to produce a product on their end, you know? And so, if they are producing maybe similar products, um, you know, that's okay because it's just not as much of a heavy lift. And that's the mistake. And just kind of just to kind of tell new founders and that sort of thing, because I've seen this where they're like, oh my god, they're already making. I mean, they could be making a quote unquote competitor or something like that, or something too close. You know, if you have something that is absolutely rock solid IP that, you know, you're worried about leaking and it's in hardware, it's just so unusual that that's the case. And then you got to be a little careful. Um, but many times, and it's just the same feeling I had was like, hey, man, I just really want to make sure that these folks are, you know, not talking to these other potential competitors. Um, it, it's counterintuitive. It's almost like you want that them to have experience, have learned from your competitors, right? Made those mistakes on their dime. And then you ramp up with your twist on the world, whether it's a software twist or a brand twist or some other physical twist. That's a great, yeah, no, that's a, that's a really great piece of advice. I mean, make sure, make sure that you have someone that can, you know, produce a product. Um, and, you know, at the same time, you know, cause at the same time of the well, you know, you're, you're also, you know, at, at, at this stage, at least you're just starting out too. So it's, um, so focus on making just a really great product or, or a, a manufacturer, a partner that actually can produce this product at like the level that you're thinking of. And don't really worry so much about maybe like the IP risk early on. Cause at the same time, like you're also early on. So, um, so, you know, like down the road maybe, but like in, in, in the early days, like, like, let's just like ship a product out there. Right. hundred percent, hundred percent. You just don't, your IP is probably not as valuable as it really think it is. Um, you know, so yeah, get it to market paramount. Yeah. 
So how how did you assess like how much you had to order in the in the first batch? And overall, like when you're producing when you were producing, um, how long did it actually take to actually produce? You know the first frame that was in your mind workable. I know you went through, you know, a, a one, one different manufacturer, but yeah. So I'll take it from the first product. Cause obviously the first product doing it the second or different. The first one probably took us, you know, from first engagement with them about two years. Right. And, and it may be not two years entirely. Like we were, there was probably a period of time when we were just shipping and testing the units and, you know, making sure they were coming out, maybe not two years, at least a year and a half between two years, right? And, you know, that's just a long, you know, we, we had one factory partner, then we had to get rid of them, we hired another one and kind of restart some things. There's bugs. Um, but yeah, and, and, you know, I think there was two questions. One was, hey, how many, how do you know how many units to do? Well, really, we had asked them this first factory, what's my minimum that I could do? And they said 5,000 units. Right now, if you think about that, you're like, all right, if it costs me a hundred dollars to make the product, that's five hundred thousand dollars of capital, right? Um, and you know, hundred can be kind of expensive too. Hopefully, you'd make it cheaper than that. But you start getting this order of magnitude of how much money you'd have to come up with, and then have maybe thirty percent down. So that's where this comes into play. Of wait a minute, you know, again, advice number one: make sure your product is not expensive, right? Like. Coming back to the advice of like, hey, um, you know, do what you can to make compromises for your first version so that your gross margin still makes sense, even if you make a couple mistakes. It's a really tough spot to say, hey, no, we're selling the product and we'll figure out the gross margin later. I just want to make sure the the, the use case works and the revenue thing works. You, you can't get to the revenue if you have no profit oftentimes. Very rarely do you have much capital that you can just force a, an, an upside down economics and that capital up front, you know, becomes huge. If it was a 20,000, $20 cost, you know, rather than forking over 500,000, you're forking over 200,000. The second part about how many units, you know, how long I think with the question and then how many units are, you know, almost two years, lots of mistakes. Um, 5,000 units was their minimum order quantity, which we was super hard. Even though after we shipped the first one, we're like, okay, great. Now I got to do another $500,000 of getting, you know, it wasn't upfront, but like we didn't have the, it's not sold. Right. So in some ways we did a, we were lucky on the first order because it was a pre-order and we told the customers it's going to be a year before you get this. We probably said six months. Right. And, and, and so we're able to take orders that helped to fund that first production run. But then when you go to the second one, right, you, you know, then we maybe have to buy all that inventory first, then sell it out or somehow finance it. It's a very tricky spot to get into. Yeah, I was going to say, now the second factory we work with, now we knew what to fix. One, give me a quote, and I want this to be your quote that's super accurate. It needs to be half that, right? Okay, great. I've just solved half of the capital. Now, two, I want to make sure I'm only going to partner with somebody that can do a minimum order quantity of 1,000 units, Right. I think we settled on 1500. Right. And it was like, great. The, you know, the unit cost is lower, which means my upfront capital is going to be lower and the total units are lower. So the total capital is going to be significantly different. I'd love to kind of dive into because, you know, inventory based businesses, they're it's really hard from a cash flow perspective, as you've, you know, um, alluded to. How did you think about 
financing, you know, your inventory and also growing. Um, because of course you have to obviously pay for the inventory to be created. And then, you know, once you sell it, then of course you get paid by the customer. So how, like, there's obviously a cash flow imbalance. How do you, how did you think overall when, when it came to financing? I would argue we were really naive at the beginning, um, thinking that, you know, first of all, when you're jumping out the window, you're, you're just like, oh, this is easy. I'm just going to do a million dollar Kickstarter. Like that's how I get the first order, right? That's an, and then, and then someone else gives me capital out of equity and they'll give me another $5 million and then whatever, this is not complex. And then that is a rational plan, right? But it's, fr it's almost like a VC backed thinking, right? Um, versus finding somebody that can sell you in small quantities so that you can fork out much smaller amounts out the door hey, $30,000 to start the order, right? Then let me, and I'm, you know, hopefully you're building up your sales pipeline, you know, let's say it's digital ads, getting good at that, starting to sell the product. And then, you know, basically uh, trying to work, you know, using still some equity capital, but at a much smaller, you know, scale. And then brick by brick, a thousand units. Hey, great, I turned a profit, 2000 units. Hey, great, I turned a profit. Let's reinvest that, reinvest that. Give you an example. GoPro never raised money, not until they basically went public. So the trick, now this is a trick that they did that I couldn't pull off. And, and this has a lot to do with selling the dream and small order quantities, right? Which is, hey, factory, um, what terms can I get, right? That'd be one. Um, can I pay you back 30 days later? Well, if it's, if it's a million dollars, nobody's going to do at the beginning. But if you can make a small order and pay it back and then they increase it every quarter, right? You, hey, you paid it back. That's great. We're going to increase the order by 25%. Go over, pay it back. And then what the other thing they did is they, you know, they, they use retail deals and factored, right? So this whole financing thing, you're, you're, you know, whether it's, you know, manufacturer or whatever, um, or, or any financing partner, everyone's going to be trying to get terms from your factory, right? Um, and I think that's the first smartest place to go. Can you just pay them later? Um, but then as you grow <laughs> and it gets harder, you realize you, that doesn't last forever, right? You, you, you got to get your unit economics right. But then you need someone to help you with capital. There's almost no way around it, really. I haven't heard of anybody, like... Aside from, in fact, I'll, I'll tell you the one, the 10 other things that GoPro had going right for them. They did this slowly over many, 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 many years. They actually did have capital and equity, right? So I, I'm, I'm, they had a rich father going along with it and funding a little bit of money at the beginning. They had full retail deals built in. And then they had a YouTube machine that was pumping out content constantly. So it was a very unique sort of viral growth, you know, methodology um, with retail who had terms as well. So that's a unique situation. But folks like us, at one point, pretty quickly, we realized, man, you need someone to finance this. And, you know, going through venture and equity is, 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 is probably not the best thing for your company. The thing about equity, too, is it's very expensive capital um, to use on just for inventory, right? Um, uh, so there's a lot of other, you know, options and, um, you know, where you can actually, you know, hopefully, uh, if, if you have access to them, access the, to the uh, debt markets and actually use debt in order to actually finance an inventory. Um, uh, so that makes sense. How, how did you also like, 
when you thought about this on the financing side, like how did you how did you think about even like choosing like like the right partners for for you? Yeah, well, you know, I think first of all, you just have to become aware. This is kind of like one of those things of like, hey, how did you find the factory? It's like somehow you have to just ask people, get advisors, start to learn, and the ideas will start to flow. Network your way in, um, and and you know, there for us too. If you think about it, it's been a a bit of a growth market and a bit of a visible growth market of companies that are coming up and financing revenue-based financing. So I think, you know, maybe 10 years ago, there would have been um, maybe a little bit longer. It would have been a little bit more like PO financing of like, hey, I've got a deal with Best Buy for this many units. It's real. You know Best Buy. Give me the capital and I'll make it. So it was like factoring and that sort of thing. Um, and that's probably the, you know, to my knowledge, those were sort of the only things out there. Um, so in the new world of direct to consumer, what do you use? There's no, you know, there's no Best Buy out there with a hard order and we, nor do we really want one at the beginning. So this has become a big conundrum. So it, on one hand, it's better because you can start to build a business slowly and not have to wait for the best buy deal to save your bacon on the flip side who's going to lend you the money for it is it purely equity and then there's this middle ground where you don't have a track record yet and so who can lend you that money so um, in a perfect world you would do a kickstarter get some sales have a little bit of a track record have a machine and some you know uh, measurable you know customer acquisition costs that you can present um but it's not easy I, I, I'm kind of curious in terms of how um, how did you end up kind of partnering or, or also like using ma manufactured what it when it came to like the financing side? Um, yeah, so um, actually, you know, it, it's kind of interesting how all this stuff works. Um, you know, we had a personal connection, <laughs> right? So to the company, um, and it, and so when and and in some ways, this is kind of why. I think it's a really, you know, this is that sort of insightful information, like look up online, you know, that's great. Of course, do things like that. Um, but I think networking with people can be maybe even more helpful in some ways. I know that, again, this sounds counterintuitive. You should always do your research, Google something, do a search, do a spreadsheet, talk to people. But, you know, what, what may work better is having a personal relationship with somebody as an entry point. Um, of, of an introduction. Um, and then you're kind of talking human to human rather than sort of an application-based flow. Um, and, and again, there's other ways of doing it. Um, but I found, remember I was telling you the idea of like the factory partner in a way that you have out there. If you can find a way to build that personal relationship, um, because you are actually quite connected in both the, from the factory side and the financing side. These are some of the most strategic, important decisions you're going to make, right? There's a lot of other frivolous, you know, things you could be doing, um, you know, who you're using for marketing, you use this firm, use that firm, change this, change that. The factory and your financing partner, I mean, it's a, you better have some sort of relationship with them per, you know, I don't know if it has to be personal, but there has to be something in there um, to handle the ups and downs. Yeah. I mean, that. 
that makes a ton of sense because I mean, you know, they're also they're also going to be the ones, as you say, that are going to be there for um, handling like the ups and downs um, um, when it comes to you know the ebbs and flows of of the business. I mean, we were just talking about how um, before this too, um, you know, in in retail, um, e-commerce retail, um, inventory based businesses, um, consumer businesses. There are certainly like an ebbs and flows. I mean, it's almost like in some ways like seasonal, right? Like because a lot of your profits, a lot of like like the big moments is kind of like Q4. And as you said, like it's really just like a, like a three-week period. So it's making sure that you are actually aligned with a partner that kind of understands in terms of, um, okay, from an inventory perspective, you know, maybe in like the, you know, summer periods, we need to really load up now and really prime ourselves in order for, you know, the, the big retail season. Um, even if in the prior months, you might not have like that, like past performance. Yeah, totally. And, um, and so this is where, where, if you have a relationship, you can have a conversation about that. And, you know, what, what I would do is pull out all the information I had about my business down to the detail and then say, you know, let's, let's all look at what I had historically and what are some of these opportunities ahead because I also want to know from their side, you know, uh, you know, manufacturer and find it, you know, basically, what are you, what are you seeing out there too? You know, you're getting other data points beyond what I'm doing, right? So you might have someone who's steady state that is kind of losing momentum. And you're like, hey, this is a softer market than you may think. Um, or, hey, things are really taking off and it's, and it's actually quite bullish. You may want to, you know, grab a bit more share. Um, and then there's just the total limit amount um that you you know that you need to all agree on um and you may want to push that up or down you know press press it up a little bit through data-based communication hey i th really think if we did x y and z um this should be pretty straightforward so um yeah i mean i think that that's um the, i think it's basically i mean i think the challenge is if you have a business that's like steady state or growing by five to ten percent a year it's not that complex Right. You you're you kind of all know what I did historically. You add a little buffer to it and you do it again. If you're planning on doubling or tripling each year, you know, the difference between doubling and tripling is a pretty big financing leap, right? Of saying, hey, look, I think I could do three three times more than I did. The market's there. Um and conversely, doing twenty percent more, it would be, you know, especially for a fast growing company, would not be considered very interesting. More risk to get it right, you know. I guess my final my final question for you is what to you is more valuable? A hundred dollars of inventory or a hundred dollars cash? Well, you know, that's a funny question. I never have never thought about that. You know what's interesting is that as your unit economics improve and you know that you can turn that into, let's call it a bit of a flywheel, like that inventory like a hundred dollars of cash in a way, with and, and I'm starting from ground zero you know, we're obviously just using normalized numbers. It then takes so long to get to a piece of inventory, right? Which is the basis of me, my sales engine. I'm just more close to the revenue, right? If I have to achieving revenue, if I actually have a piece of inventory in there. And I'd have to think about it a little longer, but you know, I think that's kind of how I feel. And to be honest with you, like one of the things that has been extremely helpful with my partnership with, um, with Manufactured is that we both identified that running out of inventory is really problematic for a business, right? It's not kind of like, hey, I'm missing out on a little bit more sales. You're, you know, for a direct-to-consumer business, you're really slowing down the momentum. 
And that means the momentum of your ads and your sales and your marketing machines, right? You go down and then it takes a while to ramp them back up. It's just sort of law of physics in some ways. Um, and so that's, again, kind of this idea of, hey, look, you want to really sell through a lot, but not everything. And so how much do you build so that you can just keep the machine moving, especially after holiday seasons where you, you know you're getting you know, an incredible demand, but you know it also drops off in Q1. Yeah, totally. I mean, I would say like how like I think about this question is, um, you know, if there's demand for your product, $100 of inventory is always kind of worth more than $100 cash. Because, of course, if you're let's say your margins are 50%, then that inventory is um, is worth, you know, $200 at at the retail value. And so, um, um, but at the same time, like, which another, um, another founder pointed this out on a previous show, like, very little, very, there's very few products that just sell off the shelf, right? Like, there's obviously marketing costs, there's other things that are kind of associated in order to actually sell that product too. So, um, uh, so that's also, you know what I mean? So like, like another, another guest said that he would actually take 85 bucks, 85 bucks if he could an inventory, $15 for marketing, and then, and then turn that into, you know, much more cash. So anyway. Yeah. And, and that's a hundred percent true, which is you really have to allocate that capital. Like you can't just walk into, which we've kind of been on the other side of that, where we started as some inventory, but we just realized we didn't have the capital to market it properly. Um, and, and then you could feel it like, oh my gosh, right, I'm sitting on all this inventory, but I don't have the capital to push it and get that. And again, that has a little bit to do with keeping the flywheel going. Because this, you know, that flywheel, it, as you even on Amazon or with SEO or affiliate deals and all that, that stuff, if you keep the machine moving, is constantly generating profit, right? Especially on like as, as we're kind of seeing like partnerships and that integrations where you're not buying ads, you don't actually need marketing capital for that, right? Like, you know, just as an example with Amazon, as you get the machine moving, you got to keep it going with a little bit of ads, but really the organic profit is, is where the economics work. And then if you have partnerships um, with, with folks that, you know, are affiliate, essentially, they take a portion of revenue, a revenue share, Again, those are wonderful. And, you know, and those might even be better than a Best Buy deal, right? Just getting it on a Best Buy store shelves, it, it sometimes I think is like you've already done your marketing up here. The customer's already been well aware of your product. They kind of want it today. Um, and it's a little less browsing thing, except during the holidays when they're like, shoot, what do I, what can I get for my family? Oh, okay, great. Let me buy this quickly. Right. Um, no, that makes, that makes a, t uh, a ton of sense. Um, Brian, this was this was an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, pleasure for me, Mike. Thanks for having me. And there you have it. It was a pleasure chatting with Brian. Brian, thanks again for coming on the pod. And also, thank you to Manufactured, who is producing this pod. Um, so Manufactured is an online platform that helps brands manufacture, finance, and distribute inventory across 25 industries and 25 countries. If you're a brand looking for inventory financing, for example, or need help on the sourcing and manufacturing side, give us a shout at manufactured.com. Thank you.